0: Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them.
1: And that's why that video of her dancing at the wedding was so important, because even with these pre-existing problems, she was active, she was happy, she was engaged, and suddenly something changed. And the only thing that was different was what happened on the ship.
2: Please rise. Court is now session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today?
3: I am good. I am um, really excited about our episode today. Um, Very relevant, very current. But before we get into that, I know you think I'm going to bring up the election, which is being counted right now, but I'm not. I actually...
2: We should tell everybody that this is the day. I mean, this will be play in a couple of weeks, but this is the day after the election. So I think everybody's moving a little bit slower today.
3: Yeah. Um, But what I was going to bring up was your Halloween costume that I saw on social media.
2: Oh, I didn't even realize it was on social (laughs) media.
3: (laughs) I am impressed with the commitment. You want to tell everybody what you're dressed up as?
2: yeah, uh, kids we were doing a family costume and the, and the kids wanted to do guardians of the galaxy and since uh if, if if people haven't seen me before i have i have a haircut that fits the character of drax so uh so i dress haircut. up as drax yeah exactly <laughs> i have a, uh, which means a bald head uh yeah so uh i i i dressed up as drax and uh i i, I didn't wear any type of costume that was my physique i'm i'm really that fit and built um <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so uh, so yeah Drax and I did I did do my own makeup though I was pretty uh I was it pretty
3: looked really myself. good yeah. it looked really good we'll have to see if there's a picture that you'll uh we put our Halloween costumes on Instagram from a couple of years ago so maybe um maybe we can get it on our Instagram I'll see if I can talk you into that but
2: yeah no no definitely I I, I don't mind I don't mind showing it I didn't I actually did not realize it had been put on social media but uh but I'm <laughs> proud of it
3: so. it, look, it was awesome <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was very impressed.
2: No, we had fun. We, we love Halloween. It's one of our, uh, one of our favorites. Did you dress up as anything? I, I did not.
3: I didn't. I, I didn't. I'm, I was very bummed not to, but I didn't.
2: I know. Cause usually you come up with some pretty good ones.
3: Yeah. I like, and I mean, I've got a garage full of like lightsabers and samurai swords and uh, <laughs> um, like blaster guns and all kinds of stuff, right. but I just didn't get it together this year.
2: Yeah, yeah, I remember a couple of years ago, you were Kill Bill, the character.
3: Yeah, that's still my favorite. Anything with it involves a bunch of fake blood.
2: Yes, 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 exactly. (laughs) But
3: this isn't a Halloween podcast.
2: (laughs) No, no, it's not. And it's not an election podcast, so we're not going to talk about that either. So uh, we're going to get right into talking to our guests. And uh, I want to go ahead and introduce uh, Ken Friedman and David Rosa from uh, Friedman Rubin, uh, out in Washington State, uh, they have offices in Seattle and Bremerton. I saw, and uh, and you can look them up at FriedmanRubin.com. dot com. That's F R I E D M A N R U B I N dot com. Uh, Ken and David, how are you guys doing today?
0: Doing great, thank good. you. Doing good, Steve.
2: You, your, your election uh, seemed to go a lot smoother. They didn't spend much time figuring out how Washington did. It just uh, went right over into the Biden column. So I guess you're, you didn't, did you stay up late for the, uh, the election?
1: Well, it's not as late on the West Coast, so it wasn't too bad, but still no results, of course.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well here in Georgia, we're still, we're still counting, still counting, so. Uh... But uh, anyways, well, guys, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Um, let me go ahead and tell everybody who you are and um, and give a little bit of background. Uh, I'll start with Ken. Uh, Ken is a, a is a, a founding partner of Friedman Rubin. And um, Ken, I, I saw. Did you go to Antioch College in Ohio? I did, Yellow Springs, Ohio. So my uh, the interesting side story: my grandmother worked in the registrar's office at Antioch College. I, I didn't. Uh, uh, you're, you're the first person I met who, uh, who's been on our show who went to Antioch. Well, my parents went there, so maybe they overlapped. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but so graduate from Antioch College, which is a fantastic college in Ohio, uh, and then went on to uh, NYU Law School. Uh, Ken is uh, licensed to practice in Washington, uh, Alaska, Oregon, Montana, and Kentucky. Um, I think the the one outlier there is Kentucky. I mean, you must have had a had a case there or something like that.
1: But. Well, we've had several. It's a it's a really good place for uh, bad faith lawsuits. And okay, we got involved in a bunch of litigation in Kentucky, and it was easier to uh, wave in with reciprocity than to keep doing pro hack applications every time.
2: Right, 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 exactly, exactly. Well, and Ken is an AV rated lawyer. He's been uh, named a super lawyer every year since 2009. has got a uh uh 10 AVO rating and uh, is uh, on the American Board of Trial Advocates and is an Eagle member of the Washington Association of Justice and a member of the American Association of Justice and has uh, just tried a a ton of cases uh, in uh, all different areas and has uh, written and spoke all over the country. Uh, So Ken, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Um, and David, uh, one thing I should note is that, you know, so we're all on zoom so we can see David and David's got a couple of guitars behind him. So I think he's going to go ahead and play one, play a song for us. Go ahead, David.
0: No. <laughs> Maybe next time. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs>
2: um, no, so Dave, David is. Uh, I, I uh, grew up in Alaska, but uh, made your way to Ohio State University, which my dad would be really proud of. Uh, he was a, he's a big Ohio State fan. So, uh, mm-hmm. um, and your football team looks pretty
0: good this year. I have to say. <sighs> And nobody's played anybody this year. I can't even bring myself to watch any college football. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's all just too too
2: odd. What yeah. and what I thought was interesting, David, is that before you started practicing law, you were a customs broker and ocean import manager uh for mm-hmm. a while and you also studied over in Germany, I saw. So you've been uh you've been uh well-rounded and uh and a world traveler.
0: Yeah, I started law school a little a little later than a lot of folks that I know. Um, and, uh, it was kind of one of those things I had, I had started a career and made my way kind of into middle management, realized it wasn't that far to go and uh, kind of started back from the, uh, from the beginning, went back to, back to school when I was about 30 and, uh, and that's led me here. All
2: right. Well, and, uh, and, and a member of the Washington association of justice and, uh, AAJ as well. And the Seattle plaintiffs, uh, round table. Uh, attorney plaintiff, Seattle Plaintiff's Attorney Roundtable, um, and has also been on just a number of cases. And uh, both Ken and David have been involved with a number of, uh, of um, uh, just great cases, uh, really good trial lawyers. But uh, what really caught our attention and, um, and what we wanted to talk to Ken and, and David about is that they tried a case, uh, we're in November now, they tried a case about a month ago And, uh, you know, as we've talked about a number of times on the show, we're in the middle of COVID, and at least here in Georgia, we're not getting any jury trials done. Um, So you might ask yourself, how did Ken and David try a case uh, during COVID? And the answer, and what we're going to talk a lot about, is that they tried uh, their case over Zoom. So uh, um, we'll talk a lot about this, guys, but how, generally, how was it trying the case um, over Zoom?
1: Well, you know, it wasn't our idea. Uh, we weren't keen on the idea, but uh, it turned out great. I'm, I've, I've become a, a real advocate for it. Uh, you know, the alternative around here is to uh, go into a courtroom and spread the jury out in the back of the courtroom. And everyone wears masks and everyone's uncomfortable, can't hear, can't see. So uh, I prefer to do it on Zoom and everybody's comfortable and relaxed and has their own screen. Uh, yeah. So, short answer it worked out well.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly, and 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 you guys tried it, an excellent case. Um, I I did notice, Ken, during your closing argument, it looks like you lost a juror once or twice that they had to had to take a break for and and get them back on.
1: Yeah, we did. I think twice during my closing and a couple times during the trial. <laughs> so um, there are certainly techno uh, technology issues uh, right. that we had to address. Uh,
2: it didn't go perfectly smooth,
1: but doesn't go smooth in the courtroom all the time either.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's always uh, technological issues, but uh, but no, the, I mean, the, the, you know, this is uh, just fascinating. Let me tell everybody a little bit about the case. And if I mess up the facts, uh, Ken and David just... Uh, uh, Tell me where I messed up. Um, But the name of the case was Margaret Dallow versus Holland America, Holland America Line Inc. Uh, There was a few other defendants, but it's mainly a cruise ship line. It was tried in federal court in the Western District of Washington, tried uh, basically a month ago. Uh, And it was involving an incident uh, with your client, Margaret Dallow, who is 84 years old and she was on a uh, cruise Uh, from San Diego to Hawaii with her daughters. Uh, And um, this was in November of 2018. And basically she was walking down the hall. It sounded like she had one daughter in front of her and one daughter behind her. Uh, And as she was walking down the hall, a crew member uh, opened a steel fire door and basically just knocked her over uh, and caused her to fall back and hit her head. Uh, that caused her to have a, a subdural hematoma, a, a bilateral subdural hematoma. But I guess one of the issues of the case that I read was that it, it uh, took some time for that to manifest itself, uh, and so there was uh, at least a, a challenge by the defense. So not, not, I mean, they challenged everything, which I, I was a little bit surprised about on the liability side of the case. And Ken, I noticed in your uh, closing argument, you you uh, raised that about how you know there's different ways to defend the case, but when somebody's walking down a hall and gets, just gets a door opened in their face, it's kind of hard to think why that wouldn't be the cruise ship's responsibility. This, and I should say by a crew member, this wasn't just some random person. This was by a crew member who came out, uh, hit, uh, Miss Dallow knocked her over and then caused her to have a brain bleed. Um, and then there was question about what injuries were caused by it. And, and that was certainly challenged vigorously by the defense, but, uh, the case, um, resulted in a uh, one point six nine million dollar verdict they found miss Dallow twenty percent at fault and I do want to talk about that more uh, so the the verdict was reduced to uh, one million three hundred and um, fifty one thousand two hundred dollars for uh, miss Dallow so uh, a really good result for that case and um, and just um, you know great work on it um, but uh so you know one of the first questions and I guess we will just start uh, talking about this is you know the the logistics of doing everything on zoom you know my first thought is how, how did you go about picking a jury on zoom uh you know and in, in doing individual voir dire if you were allowed to do that? i mean at federal court every federal court is different and in, here in federal court you get about 30 minutes worth of voir dire, and then you and then you got to pick your jury so i don't know what it's like in washington that's how it is in in georgia but um but how, how did things like that, just, just jury selection, getting to getting eyeball your jurors, things like that, how, how did that go?
0: Well, Steve, I'll, I'll take this one. This is David. Yeah. Uh, you know, going back to what Ken first said, uh, this, was, this whole thing was the judge's idea. And one of the things that we wanted at the beginning was to keep the jury in person. We wanted the attorneys and the jury and the judge to be in court, and we figured we could do the witnesses remotely, Um, maybe even have the attorneys remote. But we wanted the jury there because we were concerned about the jury. Uh, bonding and, and speaking and, and having lunch with each other every day uh, and those kind of things. We were also concerned about them losing focus, you know, having dogs barking in their houses right. or kids and things like that. Uh, but, but the judge eventually uh, issued a show cause order and said, I want to do this whole thing remotely. Tell me why I can't do it. And and we decided not to oppose that. So when we, when we, when we actually, when the rubber hit the road, um, the court was really well prepared for this and uh, the court, Uh, we selected a jury of eight from a pool of only about 32, if I recall right. Uh, So, you know, as a federal court judge, and he was doing a very streamlined, very uh, direct, succinct, and quick uh, uh, voir dire, he did allow uh, 20 minutes of questioning per side for each attorney. Uh, But the entire process took about as long as you would expect if you were there in person. I mean, we had a jury picked, uh, before the noon break, uh, and uh, openings were given in the afternoon, and we we were halfway through our first witness before the first day was over.
3: So and was it like um, when when was it conducted? Sort of like like General Vordire, and you could see everybody's little squares, and you could see your whole panel. Or were was there was it being done individually through Zoom, or how did that work?
1: We could see the whole panel. Um, I think when we had the full panel, it was spread over two screens, um, but it quickly got whittled down to 15 to 20. And um, we could see them all on one screen. And you know, it was
3: that is- easier
1: to, as easy to see them as if we were in the courtroom and you've got the advantage that you can kind of stare at them without them knowing you're staring at them. <laughs> you <just>
2: them. <laughs> right. <laughs>
3: That's a great point. And so they're all, um, and we, we'll get into this a little bit later because you did have sort of like a, um, like a pretrial order specific to how things were going to work on zoom. But so for the Vordire process, you just had your potential drawers, just zooming in from, from wherever they were at their homes or wherever they were set up, I guess. Wow. That is so interesting.
0: We're yeah, fixed. that's exactly right. It looked exactly like this call is going right now. You just had a bunch of squares on the screen. The the court told everybody to stay muted unless you were speaking, and uh, you know they they just they asked their questions just like you would in normal voir dire. The judge asked questions and said, "Does anybody has anybody been on a cruise and had a negative experience?" And then they would raise their hands, and the uh, bailiff would, uh, or excuse me, the clerk would. And uh, then record which juror number had raised their hand and the judge would follow up with them one at a time. It was, it was really just like in a normal courtroom and uh, it was surprisingly well. And as far as what
2: you're looking at on the screen, are they all numbered on your screen and with their names or what? Uh, like, did you know yes, if they said the, juror number three, who juror number three was?
0: Yeah. The clerk, the clerk was able to rename anybody. So in like in this zoom call, I can see Steve Lowry in the bottom left corner of your square and so for each juror, it was juror number one, juror number two, juror number three, uh, which made that pretty simple.
3: Wow, that is cool. I mean, and as, as Ken pointed out, you know, sometimes when you're doing, you know, jury selection in the old days and you've got however many, you know, people they decide to try to cram into your one courtroom, there's usually a good number of people that you can't see or, you know, who are kind of slouching down or don't care if you can see them. <laughs> um, and so to be able to have a square with each of their faces, I could definitely see the appeal of that.
1: And the other thing, and, and I'm I don't know the reason, but I'm speculating uh, when they're in their own environment and they haven't had to drive downtown and go through security and sit with a bunch of strangers in a big courtroom, they seem much more open and willing to talk. And we got, uh, even though we only had twenty minutes for follow up, uh, we got two jurors excused for cause, uh, and I don't think that would have happened in a courtroom. They they tend to be more uh, difficult to 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 get them to open up.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. I could see that, right? You're in you're in the comfort of your own home or you're wherever. If you if you're gonna get looks about expressing a certain opinion or or something. Um, they're not in the room with you. So I could, I could see you being a lot, you know, that being more conducive to being a little bolder or or more honest or whatever.
2: (laughs) Well, and and then, so as far as how you did your challenges, uh, I mean, do they just move the juror jury to another room and then you have your time with the judge? I mean, how, how does all that work?
1: Yeah. uh, You know, it's all (laughs) done with a click. So that some of the jurors afterwards remarked on, How much easier it was to do sidebars or or things where they were excused because it happened almost instantaneously.
0: Yeah, the clerk had a a waiting room set up. So if we needed to speak with only one person or if we needed to excuse the jurors and have a a bar over an objection or something, they would just go into the waiting room uh, and we would we would resume the proceedings like that. I don't recall us needing to do that during Deer though. Of specifically answering your question, as far as right. I, mean, the the individual Wadir and uh, uh, exploring uh, four cause challenges all took place with everybody listening to everybody. Uh, and Ken did a did a fantastic job with the Wadir. I got to I got to share a, a one funny story from the trial. We're preparing to do the individual Wadir, and there were a couple of jurors who very apparently had anti pointed biases, and uh, we're not on camera yet, and we're. <laughs> Get ready for for the for the attorney Wadir and Ken turns to me and says, "I'm going to get these guys kicked for cause. Watch, learn." <laughs> <laughs> and then he did it. Nice, he did it. Uh, he got them to admit that that they wouldn't be able to apply a preponderance of evidence standard uh, to the evidence if it concerned uh, awarding money damages because they believed that in order to pay somebody money for something, they needed to be very sure of it, uh, and they. They said, well, I think one of them said 99%, or right. yeah. like that, uh, which, uh, which pretty clearly got them uh, out or pause.
2: Right, right. And then, uh, you know, I'm just thinking about this. You know, here in Georgia, when we do our uh, peremptory challenges, you know, basically the uh, bailiff has a sheet of paper with all the jurors' names on it. They pass it to the plaintiffs. We cross out one. Then we pass it over to the defense. They cross out one. And then it comes back to us, and we cross out. And then you come to your jury that way. How do they do peremptory challenges? Are you Xing them out on the screen somehow, or no? We just did it orally. Okay. Uh, the, jury, the
1: jury was uh, excused, and uh,
2: the judge got
1: us to to go alternating through the preempts. and after we did the challenges for cause,
2: and he brought them back in and said, you know, the following jurors are excused. Okay. And I mean, you know, this is, uh, uh, it's commendable of the judge, uh, you know, to, to kind of push this. I'm sure at the time, maybe you weren't uh, all that comfortable with it, but, uh, but, you know, it sounds like they had put a lot of work into it and, you know, figure out how every aspect of the trial, uh, would go and, and, and got it to run as, as smoothly as possible.
1: One thing judge Zilly did is he ordered us or encouraged us to, uh, participate in a technology walkthrough about two weeks before trial. Yeah. And so we practiced for a year. We practiced cross-examining a witness, putting evidence on the screen, um, all that stuff we practiced uh, to make sure we knew what we were doing and to see where the uh, break points might be. Yeah. We spent, they hired, I think they hired like 10 jurors to uh, to be mock jurors. Oh. And it was about four hours altogether of, of just practicing. Wow. Oh, That's interesting. fantastic.
3: Yeah, Yeah, that's very yeah. cool. Um, well, and I, I, I mentioned this earlier, but, but um, Ken and David sent us you know, sort of a pretrial order that, that they had specific to the Zoom stuff. And it was clear that like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the details were thought about, about, you know, where, you know, who could be in the same room together, how witnesses had to Zoom in, what you had to use, what your requirements, your sort some of your technical requirements needed to be. Um, and just reading, you know, we had your opening and closing transcripts, um, so we didn't have the whole trial, but just reading um, what we did have, you know, you all seemed, um, it just, everything for the most part, except for like the technical issue that Steve mentioned, seemed to, to flow really well. I mean, you wouldn't, you know, obviously we're just reading it, but but reading it, it, it seemed like, I could easily imagine you basically being in the courtroom with your jurors. I don't know if that's how it felt, but th- when I read it, that's how it—that's how it felt.
0: The first time we had, uh, from speaking for me personally, the first time I had to speak was during opening statement, and uh, after about a minute, it felt like a courtroom. Uh, the, the first few words out of my mouth were uh, a little bit kind uh, of kind of figuring out, <laughs> it's just just kind of getting my feet underneath me, um, and I think that's probably true in a courtroom too, but. No, it was it was all very easy, and uh, once we got to examining witnesses, I think it really felt a lot like being in a courtroom. There wasn't the disconnect that we were worried about. Um, uh, You know, there was. We did have one witness where they had very poor uh, internet quality, uh, poor sound and audio, and uh, we cut that witness short just so that we could get that figured out. But as long as there's a clear sound connection and you can see the witness's face. Uh, you know, it's, it's just like you're there in person. Really. I don't, I don't have the same fears about any disadvantage from being in the same room as I used to. Right. And we were able, we were able to do
1: all the usual stuff. We would cross examine witnesses with video clips of their depths. Uh, We would put, uh, you know, journal articles on the screen and make experts look at them. Uh, It really felt like a normal trial, except without the hassle of going to the courtroom every day.
2: All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. and You can find them at LTSAtlanta.com.
3: Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos stuff for your website?
2: Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at LTSAtlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770 554 one six three three that's legal technology services at ltsatlanta.com
3: and steve don't forget we have a gift for our listeners oh yeah
2: i totally told you to remind me and i totally (laughs) screwed it up so, yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into Legal Technology Services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com, Legal Technology Services. Uh, give them a try.
3: So, just to visualize, let's say you're in the situation where you've got um, um, you, you've got a witness that you're you're crossing or whatever. On your screen at that point, what can you see? Can you see the jurors? Can you see the judge? what What were you able to see while you're doing that?
1: We could always have a screen with the judge, opposing counsel, and the jurors. And then if, you know, we had two screens set up and we would have on the other screen, PowerPoint or exhibits, whatever we're using uh, with the witness. Okay. And and the jurors, I assume most of them had one screen and they could just see, you know, what we were presenting.
3: Gotcha. Okay. Because that was what I was wondering was if you could still, <clears throat> you know, you want to be able to kind of. Look at the judge and see what the judge is doing about certain stuff, and obviously look at the jury and see what they're responding to. So you can see them the whole time if you need to while you're doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, one problem I had, uh, I hadn't thought it through on closing, and so I had my PowerPoint and I had my notes, and then I didn't have a screen for the jurors, and I'm basically delivering to a webcam, right, without getting any feedback. And and I think it was, you know, needs practice to do it that way, and I I will. I'll try harder next time. It felt very really flat, my delivery.
2: Yeah, it's it, it's hard. You know, I mean, I've given a few speeches to, you know, groups and webinars and things like that. And it is hard. Ju- I mean, and that, you know, that's not near the pressure you have of being in front of a jury. But, um, you know, it is hard when you're given a speech and you don't really have any idea of whether or not people are paying attention, whether they're with you or whether or not they're you know, tuned you out and they're, you know, uh, looking on their um, uh, you know, iPhones or something like that and, and, uh, getting the latest scores. Um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely can see how that might be a, a little bit awkward for you.
0: You know, I didn't, I didn't really, uh, first of all, I disagree that Ken's delivery was flat and <laughs> right. closing, but, um, you know, the, 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 jurors were engaged the whole time in this, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, everybody was, everybody was engaged. Uh, The only there was one juror who would pull out a book whenever the judge would uh, uh, break in the proceedings, uh, you know. Uh, But otherwise, there was nobody was distracted, and you know maybe part of the reason for that, uh, maybe maybe a reason who knows. The the judge actually had an extra pair of eyes on the jury at all times, so the judge had two had two clerks. He had a clear a career clerk. And, um, and another clerk, whose job it was essentially to watch the jury and make sure that a nobody dropped off the call, uh, you know, nobody squared disappeared on the Zoom call because that can happen, and if you're not watching, you'll never know. And then also to make sure that nobody was, was not or falling asleep.
2: Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, I think most people, at least, you know, most lawyers. Uh, read about that. Uh, there was a case, I think maybe in Texas where they tried to do something by Zoom and they talked about how one of the jurors took a conference call in the middle of trial or something like that. And so, but uh, so, I, but it sounds like, I mean, so every, all the jurors had to be seen and then somebody was watching them to make sure they were paying attention and not dropping off, things like that. Yeah. And, and you know, they
1: probably could be reading emails or something without us knowing, but uh, we didn't get that impression. Yeah. They, I, I think people were, you know, they're, the judge made it go fast, which I think held their interest better. And um, I think people were bored and they're looking for something to do, stuck at home for six months. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. they were happy. They're happy to be there, most of them. I mean, one clearly didn't want to be there when, when he was chosen. You could see his expression. But even that guy uh, seemed to pay attention throughout. Yeah. Yeah. We,
3: I had written in my notes that I wondered if there were when I was just reading up about the case, if there were any sort of, you know, pros from sort of a juror, juror standpoint to to having a trial this way, in addition to the things that we might think about that we're all dealing with when we're doing depositions by Zoom as lawyers, like just the not having to park, not having to sit in traffic and all that stuff. But um, because I could see, you know, the, the flip side of when they're all together in the courtroom is that. There are distractions, right? There are people that are coming in and out of the, the the courtroom just to watch. And then there's, you know, you know, they'll just start staring at, you know, whatever. They're just look, they're just watching people. They're sitting there all day. And so I wonder in some ways if there's less distractions um, you know, than they would otherwise have. I guess it's maybe it's just different distractions or a different sort of challenge for for jurors to stay engaged that way.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting. Point. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. Uh, you know, sometimes jurors will be fixated on an attorney's socks or something like that. And that's <laughs> all they pay attention to. Right. And, uh, it's, they can't think. They can't even pay attention to the witnesses because they're looking at the you know the the multicolored, bright colored socks of the <laughs> across the room. But um, you're right. That, they wouldn't have had that distraction. Another advantage for them with this way is that. Now, we were able to put the exhibits up on the screen uh, and blow them up and highlight them and everything. So they were getting a really good view of the documents and the evidence that we were using. We didn't have to use an overhead projector. Right. You know, and have them looking across a, a huge courtroom. Um, although in federal court, they you know they they've got screens and that kind of thing. But you know, they were able to see the evidence really up close uh, and and well. And we were able to embellish and highlight the parts that we wanted to fairly fairly easily. So uh, that's another advantage uh, is is showing the evidence there. In, in state court here in Washington, you, you know, we typically have to use an overhead projector, and we're in a courtroom that's awkward to set right. up. And, and the jury has to squint and put on their glasses and whatnot to try to see the evidence that we're trying to highlight for them Didn't have that problem here. They had everything uh, right up in front of them and, and uh, were able to zoom in plenty.
2: Yeah, I was, I was thinking exactly about that because, you know, we've all been in courtrooms where because of how the courtroom is set up, you know, it, a lot of times it was built before, you know, anybody thought about putting uh, any sort of presentation or a screen or anything. So you might have a screen that's kind of sitting in an awkward position and not everybody can see it that well. Um, you know, I so always
3: dread that like first <laughs> right, day where it's right. like the court reporter is like, I can't see. And so then you move it and the judge is like, no, I need to be able to see that. So then right. you move an opposing counsel can't see. It's the it's just the right, worst. Right,
1: exactly. <laughs> and One of the jurors, I think he was on a tablet. He said, even when you didn't zoom in, I could use, I could zoom in on my tablet and see what I wanted to see on an exhibit or a photograph or whatever. So uh it gave them a little more control. Wow. I guess, yeah,
2: I was, I was wondering about that. So did, was there, when when they were, I guess, calling the jurors in the first place, did they have to make sure that they had some sort of device that they could use Zoom on? Yeah, and I think, I and I,
1: the court before we even saw the panel, I think excluded people who couldn't, uh, couldn't bring the right technology in, which I think raises some concern. Right. And if, um, I, they, I think uh, the Western District is now using loaner laptops for jurors who otherwise couldn't participate. Uh, we didn't want to raise a stink about it because we just wanted this trial to go. Right. Uh, we didn't care that much if the panel was a good cross section of the community. But in another case, you sure might.
2: Yeah. I mean, you had, a, uh, I, I guess, even a heightened concern or, you know, reason why you wanted to get this case to trial. I mean, your client, I think she was 84 years old when this happened. And I think at the time of trial, you said she was 86. So, right. I mean, she's was, she's was definitely getting uh, up there in years. Did, was she were they from San Diego? Yeah. Uh, um, they they all live there. The uh, Holland America
1: Contract requires you to sue in the Western District of Washington, no matter where you were injured in the world or where you live.
2: So, since you were on Zoom, did did they stay in San Diego or did you bring them up to Seattle? No, they did. They okay. stayed in San Diego, uh,
1: and we called know, several family members and treating doctor, and uh, you know. Um, among other advantages, we saved a lot of money in right.
2: travel. I was thinking that exact thing too. I was like, I bet this trial was a lot cheaper than normal because you don't have to get your experts there. You know, put them up in a hotel. You know, for a day or whatever. You know, it's definitely a way to uh, to save yeah, some money. We had a neurosurgeon from uh, Southern California who would have cost
1: us. $20,000 to get in
3: there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then it,
3: How, how did it work? I'm sorry, Steve, to interrupt that's okay. you, um, but I'm going to, I'm doing it anyway. Go, um, go ahead. How did it work with your, um, your client in terms of either I'm, I'm guessing maybe because of her age and the medical stuff that we haven't really talked about yet, she might not have sat there the whole time, but if she had wanted to um, sort of sit and watch the whole trial as, as your plaintiff, would she have been able to do that as well? She
1: would have been. In fact, her grandson, who's an attorney, um, sat through the whole trial as a client representative. She uh, English is a third language for her. um, So she would not have gotten that much out of sitting through the whole trial. And she was not really in a condition to to sit through it as well. Right. So we were actually debating if the trial was in a courtroom. You know, we, we wanted the jury to meet her. So we probably would have flown her up here, had her testify for an hour and she would have been in a hotel for a week.
2: Right, right, yeah, exactly. And then the other thing I, I I noticed, your opposing counsel looked like they were from Long Beach, California. Were they? Were did they stay down in Long Beach, or did they come up to Washington? They did. They were in their office in Long Beach. Yeah, that's that's uh that's fascinating.
3: I mean, there's certainly it's when you do this stuff on Zoom, and, and obviously we haven't done a trial yet, which is. Um, Part of the reason why we've spent so long asking you about (laughs) the logistics and not talking about the case yet, but um, just even doing the depositions, I think it really like we all knew, sure, that we spent a bunch of time as lawyers that we spent a bunch of time in traffic or a bunch of time, you know, making copies of binders of stuff to bring to the courthouse or parking or whatever, but it really has been shocking how much time how much more efficient things seem to be even once the deposition starts i feel like people are more efficient attorneys are more efficient in zoom depositions than they are in in-person depositions
0: yeah, yeah. You, you kind of have to be in uh you know we we made the concerted effort during trial to just be really brief with our witnesses because we didn't want the jury to we didn't want to give the jury a chance to get bored right uh, we, we realized that we were on a short leash with everybody here and uh we need to Uh, get the facts out and make our points and sit down and be done Uh, so i think and i don't know i don't know how it affected the defense but i will say that the trial moved along pretty quickly i mean uh we were we were in and out of there and how many days was it ken five trial days plus maybe another half day for closing is that is that right Yeah. yeah yeah wow
2: well um I mean so I mean we we spent a lot of time talking about the logistics of this let's uh, let's actually get in and talk about the case yeah um, and
3: let and let's say that it is it's especially impressive to know that it that it only took that long considering as we're going to talk about that the case was basically defended every, every attacked any way it could be attacked. Yeah,
2: that's what sort of surprised me. And, and, and as I said, can you mention this in your closing? I mean, it, you know, I, I, I certainly see a legitimate defense along, you know, questioning how, how badly she had been injured with her age. What, you know, what would be the cause of that? But the, you know, this sort of, uh, tactic of, um, you know, this, this wasn't our fault at all. And, um, and that, um, Basically, they were putting 100% of the blame on Miss Dallow for literally walking down a hall, which I mean, that, that sort of just stunned me, you know, how do you really put the blame on somebody for walking down a hall and then a door is opened in their face?
1: Well, I mean, the sad point is uh, they got
2: a 20% reduction. <laughs> I saw that, so I definitely was going to ask that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, I thought, and maybe it did, I, you know, we didn't get to talk to the jurors about uh, the deliberations process or their, you know, the substance of the deliberations. But I thought it might backfire that they were, you know, I tried to play that up in closing. I thought it might backfire that they were uh, blaming her 100% and taking no responsibility Uh and maybe it did, but it was crazy. I mean, for they had some good causation arguments, right? right you know, valid arguments. But to, you know, not only did they dispute liability, but they um, they argued that after her brain surgery, her brain was in a better condition than before this accident. Oh, wow. So, and that's why you know they offered almost nothing at mediation. Right. And, you know, it was not just a tactic; they kind of believed it. Right, right, exactly, exactly.
3: There was a comment, I I don't wanna skip ahead, but I'm going to anyway, because there was, um, it, it sounded like you all had a very powerful video that you showed of your client before her injury. It sounded like maybe she was like at a wedding or a party just to kind of show how she was moving, which is always great when you have that kind of before video and this was not long before. And one of the things that they argued in closing was that, well, if you watch her in that video, she's not moving her feet around that much. And the thing that I thought was particularly shocking was they said that her smile was like just a mask, which I think is such a bold thing for a lawyer to say about somebody yeah. who's been injured.
0: Yeah. Yvonne, well, they, you know, sorry, go ahead, David they
1: were feeding off their neurologist uh, their expert neurologist who testified to that uh, you know the day before that closing so uh they had expert testimony that said you know she didn't look that happy at that party and she wasn't dancing the way normal people dance and she did have problems with her gait and uh, you know everything she's complaining about now she had uh pre-existing and you can see that in this video where you know she looks so happy and active
0: and, and to build on that, uh, they, they were not only saying that uh, she was already injured. They, they were really trying to build a case that she was lying. Um, and unfortunately, right. that backfired on them as well. Now, when we took, we, we flew down to San Diego and took a handful of in-person depositions back in, uh, it was about a year before the trial. So before COVID and everything, travel was safe. We went down and we spoke to a bunch of people. And uh, when each of the lay witnesses were being questioned, uh, they were sure to ask them, well, is she using a walker all the time? And everybody said, yes, she needs to use a walker. And during those depositions, they had sent somebody to video surveil her. So they had video surveillance uh, showing her walking from her home into the car and into the deposition. And they were really hoping to catch her lying about using the walker and how she's moving around. But unfortunately, that video just confirmed everything everybody said. And so, you know, at trial, we were able to show that to the jury that, you know, when nobody's watching and uh, and she's just living her life, this is what it looks like, you know? Um, and, and I think that was maybe our most powerful piece of evidence. The videos and the photos of her before, I think, were absolutely helpful. But uh, the most the best video is the one that came from the defense in this case.
2: Yeah, no, that that, that was certainly a, um, uh, a, a big <clears throat> moment, both the openings and closings was that, you know, that they hired somebody, you know, to sort of hide in the bushes and follow her around and take pictures of her. And uh, and yeah, and she's still acting the same way. So, you know, now basically, you know uh we 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 deal with uh investigators following clients a lot and you know sometimes it borders on harassment and um but uh but yeah i mean to show that that basically she's living her life exactly the same when when uh she doesn't know that somebody's you know uh spying on her uh is is definitely powerful. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, um, and I didn't mention in the, in the opening is your, uh, client was from Northern Iraq, I think. And, and as you said, she, um, she could speak English, but she didn't speak it that well and she needed an interpreter. How did you handle that? Were you worried about biases, uh, you know, because of, uh, you know, where she was from, uh, and not being able to speak English and, and, and if so, how did you, how did you address that?
1: Well, she was an Iranian Christian, not Muslim, so we had a little less concern about, uh, you know, bias the jury might have. Uh, if she was a Muslim, we might have to have to have explored that. Uh, we had to. I uh, don't remember. Did we talk about the interpreter in Wadir or opening? Kind of let them know it was going to happen.
0: Yeah, I I told them in opening about that and just kind of gave the jury an idea that listen, she's uh, you know she moved over here when she was an adult and she was in her 40s or 50s, Um, and if she speaks English, but she doesn't speak English great. And yeah, I mean we just we just told them flat out in opening that uh, she's going to have the assistance of an interpreter, although she does speak some conversational English. Um, And to answer your question, Steve, I I don't think we were concerned about the jury. uh, not liking this woman she was such a likable person and when we yeah. met with her and everything i gotta say she's one of my favorite clients ever uh, after the day of her deposition when when she was going home she gave me a hug and told me that she loved me right and, yeah, oh, and awesome. i really felt she believed it <laughs> and, uh, you know i felt like i I, mean, I was ready to adopt her as my grandma. <laughs> right. She, she has a. She had a neighbor that we were planning to call. We ended up cutting him just just for time purposes. She had a neighbor who lived next to her for 20 years. He calls her mom. Um, you know, she's just that kind of a person. Really, really, just a loving person. She she just lives for her family, and that's it. And uh, so I don't think we were concerned about the jury uh, getting a bad impression of her. Um, you know, and I, I think that those sort of things. They, they come they, they come through even with an interpreter.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah and uh, her family was very likable as well. And, um, you know, it's really the American dream of this immigrant family who became very successful. Uh, and they implied with a couple of her family members that, you know, that they might be shading their testimony to help her win the case, uh, which really opened the door. Uh, I asked her son, you know, is your is your mother? comfortable financially and he said you know it's my pleasure to support her until her last day and i've been blessed to live in this country and, and have uh, all the benefits that have been offered to us so uh, he sounded very genuine that he clearly loved his mother and that this was not a case about money it was a case about uh, responsibility
2: yeah um the western district of washington is that mainly the jurors mainly come from the seattle tacoma area or where are they it goes uh it excludes
1: Tacoma. Okay. It goes from uh, the South King County, which is Seattle, all the way up to the Canadian border. So uh, you've got, it's pretty diverse uh, politically. Right. Um, but uh, the bulk is the Seattle area. Right,
2: right. Um well, uh, I, I wanted to mention, so uh, as far as experts go, you had hired a human factors expert who kind of talked about, uh, you know, the dangers. And, and, I, and I, I liked the theme that you both used of, you know, saying, you know, basically this is a hazard. They knew people were going to be walking here, so it's definitely foreseeable to them. They, of course, made uh, big arguments using, uh, I think it was a naval architect um, which sounds like uh, uh, David did some pretty good cross-examination on, um, but um, a naval architect who said that it met all regulation, the boat met all regulations, um, and that there had never been, I thought, I thought the way they worded this was interesting, and I wondered if the jury picked up on it, but the way they, that there had never been an issue with this door, that nobody had ever been hurt by this door, which kind of makes you think, well, you have a bunch of boats and a bunch of doors uh, Were they injured by any of the other doors, but, um, but uh, t- talk a bit, little bit about that, David, one of the things that I think you pointed out uh, in your cross of that, uh, of that expert, uh, it seemed like there was a point made that, that there, that door was a, was a fire door. It was for a fire safe zone is what the defense was claiming. And it was a steel door and there was no window in it. And they were claiming you weren't allowed to, to to put a window in that door, and then you had found one that met the same requirements uh, and had a window in it.
0: Yeah, so I, I need to make sure I give proper credit for that. That was actually our investigator and trial tech, Cameron, who is who was assisting us with putting on our evidence. He was the one who who, who looked and and uh, uh, found a, a fire door. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, what he's saying, what, he, what his entire opinion was. This door cannot have a window in it, and of course, why does that matter? It matters because if there was a window, then the person who's pushing the door open could look through and see if somebody's on the other side. If the door had a window in it, you know, we're probably not uh, bringing this lawsuit at all because the accident never happened. Right. He's saying you cannot have a window in this door because it's against regulations. It, it's against solace or safety of life at sea. Uh, which is a body of regulations that's governed by the IMO or the International Maritime Organization. And so, you know, Cameron was able to pretty easily find uh, an example of a door that is certified by the International Maritime Organization that would have fit all of the specifications and certainly could have been used in this ship. Uh, and it had a window in it. Uh, and, uh, you know, this, this expert, I don't know, you know, I, I'm really not sure what was, what, what his deal was, but his report never cited to a single actual regulation. And he made all kinds of sweeping opinions about the regulations, say X and Y. He never cited anything. He never, he never actually showed you his math. Uh, and I think, you know, that was, uh, you know, in the cross-examination, I, I, I got him to essentially commit to the fact that, uh, if it's an IMO certified fire door, uh, and I think it was a class A or something like that, then you could use it. And, and he really kind of uh, committed to that point. And then we showed him a, a, a certified fire door by the IMO and he was kind of stuck with it. Uh, he tried to wiggle his way out of it, but, um, you know, we offered the exhibit and got it into evidence without objection. And, uh, you know, we're able to make our argument in closing.
2: So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the great trials podcast, unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's digital law marketing. They are a great company that does website design SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online.
3: Yeah. I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, that's you you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with.
2: Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm.
3: They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, They do our firm's website, and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate (laughs) because they're so good at what they do.
2: Exactly, and and, you know the thing. uh, Another thing I like about them is they're they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day, and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which. Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that.
3: Yes, they're awesome.
2: So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com.
3: And tell them we sent you.
2: A couple of things that I thought were interesting uh, is that... um, the, the crew member who opened this door, uh, and, and hit miss, uh, Dallow, uh, I guess was from Croatia. Um, and, uh, they, they never brought him to trial and you guys never had a chance to, um, to depose him or, um, to take any testimony from him. And then I guess there was, uh, two other brothers. that were also part of the crew that were with him. They'd never got interviewed or anything like that. And it sounded like they didn't bring them to trial either. Did, Um, was it really a a situation where they didn't know where these guys were or did you just think they didn't want to bring them to trial?
1: Well, I mean, I normally would be suspicious um, if they can't find any of the key witnesses. They certainly, um, at the time of the on-ship investigation, dropped the ball. But, uh, you know, the defense attorney and the defense firm in this case were pretty straight shooters and and I don't think they were up to anything uh, nefarious. I think by the time We wanted to talk to them. They honestly couldn't find them.
0: And and this was also uh, the case that these folks were, uh, they were, they were contracted agents, right? So they, they were not, I mean, they were, they were crew members, uh, but they were not employed by Holland America. Holland America had contracted for these folks. So, you know, it's possible that they, uh, you know, just didn't have the the information to go looking for these guys and they didn't dig too hard in discovery. I mean, but I mean, they, we asked, we asked for their uh, contact information. We tried to uh, connect with them. All we were given were some addresses in Croatia, you know, what are we going to do with that? Go knock on their door. Right. Um, (laughs) But yeah, Steve, absolutely. You know, we, these were, these were, these were the most important witnesses in the case Um, and they weren't there and Holland America didn't bring them. And uh, you know, so we were kind of stuck with the written statements they provided, which I think were, uh, you know, not really favorable to one side or the other. Well, the the thing I thought was
2: interesting and it sounded, it, it very much sounded like, uh, to me, it sounded coached, but the that the, uh, the crew member who had actually opened the door made the point of uh, writing twice, I think, into his statement that he had gently opened the door. And that just doesn't sound like the way you would normally talk about opening a door unless somebody's telling you to say, you know, make sure you say you did it gently. Um, but yeah, so that seemed to become like a big point that they were saying, well, he, he just barely opened the door and then she fell over and she didn't right. hurt anyone. And that was their excuse for not interviewing the two other
1: crew member witnesses is, is there's no dispute. The door was open gently. We didn't need to talk to any more people. Uh, so they really, uh, it really bought into that, uh, narrative. Well, and to this- me,
0: uh, sorry, to no, me, go see, ahead. It's, it's not so much a, a, a matter of uh, this person being coached. I, I My my personal view was he was just trying to protect himself. He was afraid of uh, some kind of uh, disciplinary action or firing or something. So, you know, he in his written account of what happened, he wrote something that was favorable to him. I wouldn't really expect anything different. Uh, you know, if I were a young kid working on a cruise ship and I, I accidentally open door and hit somebody, I might shade things in my favor and the written part of it as well. Right. Right.
3: Um, I was going to ask, just speaking of the logistics for where this happened that, so how does it work when you want to do like a site inspection?
0: Uh, I can speak to that because I did the site inspection. Um, we, we just communicated with opposing counsel, said we want to do a site inspection, uh, sent them over a notice and then worked on the date and the, the boat came into Harbor in Seattle uh, for a few days. And uh, I met with our expert, Joellen Gill, and she and I went on board the boat. Uh, the defense counsel was there with uh, one of their experts and they just brought us to the subject location. And we took a bunch of photos and video and, and walked around and uh, performed our inspection and then, and then left. Uh, oh, cool. So, so I was
3: thinking it might be like a logistical nightmare, but it wasn't, it wasn't too bad.
0: No, no. Pre-COVID.
1: And, you know, that video that our expert took ended up being uh, a really funny part of the trial, which is they put their risk management guy on the stand as their corporate rep. And uh, we asked him if there was video surveillance video on that deck of the ship. He said he didn't know. So we showed the video that Ms. Gill took and you can see those, uh, those little bubbles that cameras are in Mm -hmm. not too far from where the incident took place. And I asked him, did you ever ask anybody uh, for a copy of that video? And he said, I don't know anything about it. So the jury was left with the impression that the whole thing was on video and they were hiding it. Yeah. We don't know. We asked for video. They said there wasn't any, but they put a witness up who didn't know anything about it. Right. Right. Yeah. That's pretty, I mean, he should have said, I looked at the video and they're, didn't capture the event, but he didn't say that.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, I, I want to make sure that we get a chance to talk about um, her injuries and and the and the damages part of the case. So um, you know she she fell back and she hit her head on I think a, a door frame that was nearby, um, and it sound like initially she thought she you know had bumped her head and was okay um in said that she didn't want to use any pain medication i think they they at least what the defense was arguing was that they gave her the option of going to um uh, the emergency room or something like that or going to the, the doctor's quarters or something and she she declined and then the i I think, I think the cruise went on for a couple more days and then uh i think the daughter started to notice her you know acting differently declining uh acting uh tired and then they eventually uh you know go get her checked out and it turns out that she's got this bilateral subdural hematoma but that sounded like that wasn't diagnosed for at least a few weeks is that right
1: yeah that's right and uh, our neurosurgeon said that's you know exactly what you'd expect for a woman her age with a slowly developing bleed um it it takes time to develop because older people's brains have shrunk a little bit and there's more room for the blood to fill in before it starts compressing the brain. And you'd expect four to six weeks before it became, you know, a real serious problem. Yeah. You
2: you know, it's interesting. I, this is just an an aside, but I, when I was a young lawyer, one of the partners in my firm, who was an older guy, he was going into an older elevator that didn't line up correctly. He tripped and hit his head on it. And, um, we thought he was fine, and then it literally, it was like about three or four weeks later, he was just having terrible headaches, and, and he went to the hospital, and turned out he had a subdural hematoma. Um, so it, it definitely can take some time to, to form like that.
0: Well, and, and you know, there was uh, some uh, contemporaneous evidence of head injury here. She did, she did go down to the uh, medical, ship's medical center, And really, that's the only reason why uh, incident reports were generated. Uh, We know from our experience working against Holland America on cases that they don't prepare incident reports or do an investigation unless there's uh, a trip to the medical center. And so uh, she went there and they noted that she had a bruise on her head from this. Uh, You know, so there is confirmation that she fell and then she did strike her head and the testimony from her family was that uh, almost immediately she you know, had some uh, issues that she was dealing with. She had some headaches. Uh, she wasn't feeling that, uh, that good on her feet. She was feeling a little bit off balance and that kind of thing. And so there is there is a a consistent timeline from the time of the injury to the time that they detected the subdural hematoma that shows that this was a developing injury. And um, you know, I mean, there was the the problem with this case damages wise was that there was so much evidence in the medical records and elsewhere that you could really uh, you could paint the facts any which way you wanted. Uh, and the defense expert actually, I think did a really good job of that. Um, right. but, but, uh, having said that the testimony from the people that were there and were witnessing, uh, progression of this injury, uh, was not something that you could argue the other way because everybody noticed an immediate change in her. Uh, and everybody noticed, uh, uh, an increasing level of symptoms in her, uh, that, ultimately led them to say, hey, this is enough. We need to take her to a hospital now because uh, she's just not right. Right. So what what David's talking about in the medical records is
1: all the symptoms that we say were resulting from the brain injury she had before. She had headaches before. She had balance issues before. Mm -hmm. She had fatigue. She had depression. I mean, it went on for, I think, 22 things they listed that we were complaining about were in the records before. And that's why that video of her dancing at the wedding was so important, because even with these pre-existing problems, she was active, she was happy, she was engaged. And suddenly something changed. And the only thing that was different was what happened on the ship.
2: Well, and it sounded like, um, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but did she have a, a some sort of a scan done a couple months before this incident that showed, you know, essentially right. that there, there was no bleeding uh, or anything like that? Right. Because there's also a history of falls. Right.
1: Um, prior to this. And she did have a brain scan, uh, just a few months before the cruise. And luckily for us, uh, it showed no bleeds.
3: Well, and I just, I think that's what's one of the things that's so impressive about this result is that, that you all got is that not only did you have to fight all these liability fights and it's really kind of Highly technical things about about how the whether the door could have windows and all these certifications and stuff. But as we've talked about on this show several times, um, traumatic brain injuries can be tough to 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 prove to demonstrate the causation. Their symptoms can be strange in a in a much more straightforward case in a case with a younger, healthier person. But you know the fact that you all achieve this with with someone of that age is is um especially impressive because well I don't know just, I mean just show me the 84 year old who doesn't have a history of like falls or dizziness or right. something but you still had to really overcome that um when TBI cases are already tough
0: I have never seen a set of medical records uh that had more uh just bumps in the road than this one. I mean, these, the medical records in this case were our worst enemy by far. And uh, what convinced me fairly early on in the case that we could overcome the medical records was spending some time with the client, the client's family, the people that knew her because everybody told a consistent story. She may have had problems before, but she was living her life. She was doing what she wanted to do and yeah she had headaches but she got up every day and she visited with family she went to weddings she did lots of traveling she was just a, a you know just a a really active 84 and uh, I think the the listeners should also know that in this case, our judge uh, himself is eighty five years old. Oh. <laughs> so so people in their people in their mid eighties, you know, especially your brain injured clients, uh, you know, they're not they're not half in the casket. You know, a lot of people in their eighties are living very good lives, very good right. lives. I had a neighbor up in Alaska who, well into his nineties, would get up into his Havoline Beaver every day and go flying, you know, and walk down his gravel driveway and climb up into this, you know, cockpit that's up a couple stories and his planes on floats and this guy's in his nineties doing that. So I've seen folks living really active. This was one of those people. Yeah. The lay witness testimony, the friends and family, and neighbors that knew her really carried the day in this case, I think. Well, I, I
2: I did want to ask the um, you know, in the defense opening, uh, the lawyer sort of you know uh, told everybody that she was going to spend some time cross examining your client with her medical records and that she just wanted to prepare him for that. And so I was wondering how uh, how did you all go about preparing your client for that and or or um, you know uh, maybe doing it first to sort of take all the steam out of it and and um, how did she do on on cross? Well, it didn't happen. Okay. Um, it, it would have been
1: uh, it would have been painful to see her try. Uh, I think she asked her some questions about some pre-existing things, and our client just admitted them. Uh, you know, we told her not to argue, admit what you need to admit, uh, and uh, it was over before you knew it. It, uh, You know, she had gotten... She'd gotten
2: easier ways to prove it than cross-examining a client. Right, right, exactly. Well, and, and the other thing I was wondering about is you know, she sort of mentioned, uh, you know, the, I think your client was taking blood thinners, but then this sort of theory that she had suffered um, some silent strokes, what was the evidence of, about that and how did that come across? Well,
1: there were, I don't know, a series of prior brain images um, for going back four, five, six years. So their uh, neurologist uh, looked at them and said, you know, this is a brain that's got all kinds of problems in it, uh, you know, including a series of silent strokes over the years. So basically, this is a fragile brain, not an eggshell kind of brain, but some that, you know, all kinds of things could have caused the problems that we are complaining of. Yeah. And we just turned that into more of an eggshell argument, which is, you know, she was more susceptible Uh, because of the age of her brain and and any other condition she was having.
2: Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about how you how you presented damages, because, you know, that's one of the things with with representing a, you know, somebody who is 84 years old uh, at the time this happens. You know, you know, what exactly is the the damages as far as, you know, what what's the right number to to compensate her? Uh, Talk about how you address that for for um, Miss Dallow. Uh, it was a, it, oh, David
1: and I had a lot of conversations about that. Uh, you know, if it was, if it was our, if we were on the jury, we would have given her $5 million, but, uh, we thought that that was too much to ask, uh, for somebody who went from some problems to more problems. Uh, right. uh it just, it seemed like a stretch and it was hard. Uh, you know, we argued that, uh, your last few active years with your children, grandchildren, great grandchildren, the most valuable you've got. Yeah. And, and and they should be uh, well compensated for it, but you know, a jury could have done anything with these, with these facts.
2: And and you said you didn't get a chance to talk to the jury. Did you get any sense at all, at least I guess in your minds of why they decided to put 20% uh, fault on her?
1: No, As you know, sometimes just being at the place where the accident happens is enough to give you a 10% fault. Uh, The argument the defense made was she should have seen the door there. She should have known it could open towards her. And so she should have therefore walked farther away from the wall as she's walking down the hallway. And uh, that must've got a little bit of traction.
3: Yeah, I guess. I mean, I thought you handled that really well. In terms of a lot of the the misdirection that there was about, you know, whether the door was visible, I thought you handled really well in your closing. And I don't know about throughout the trial since we didn't have those transcripts, but you know, those sort of attempts that I think we're all familiar with in when you've got experts testimony, especially like it happens in products cases It clearly happened in this case where you've got an expert who comes in and it's sort of reframing the issue a little bit where you're like hang on no one's saying she couldn't see the door that's not the question right. um but i thought you did a did a, a really good job of of making sure the jury didn't fall for those sort of tricks for lack of a I,
2: I i really liked I, I should say ken i really liked your uh, when you talked about the four dog defense and um and then and then showed how their uh, defense was uh, was was just like yeah. that you want to you want to tell our listeners what the four dog defense is yeah, I'll try to from memory. It's a
1: man accused of having his dog bite someone. His his defense is I don't own a dog. And if I did own a dog, it doesn't bite. And if I owned a dog that bit, it didn't bite you. And if it did bite you, you provoked it. Right, right. <laughs> that's kind of where we are here. You know, we didn't it wasn't our fault the door hit you and you weren't hurt that
2: bad. And if you were hurt bad, you made a complete recovery. Right. Yeah, I know on top of that, you're lying, your whole family's lying and uh, you're just in this for money. Right, which
1: was the other thing that made the money ask difficult is because we made it clear to the jury they didn't need any money. Uh, this is probably the one of the wealthiest uh, families we've ever represented. So uh, that's no reason not to give them, you know, not to award. And I think I argued that in closing. You, you might remember it more than I do, but I think I said something like, uh, you know, it would be wrong for you to give them more money because they're poor. Right. But it's also wrong to give them less money because they're not. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
2: Um, I, I go ahead. Yvonne.
3: Well, I just I had I had a cruise ship uh, question in general, because <laughs> I I know that um, I mean, even back from law school, I that they'll have. It sounds like you all had a form selection clause. Um, I wasn't sure if I know sometimes. Um, there's arbitration stuff in there. I just wasn't sure if you had any like warnings or anything you wanted to share for our like cruise, cruise ship passenger listeners. <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll take this one because I, I screen a lot of our cases and I'm always uh, going through the fine print. Uh, it's important where your cruise starts from and ends up. Uh, if your cruise touches a US port at all, then federal maritime law is likely going to apply, which means that there aren't going to be any damages caps. If your cruise touches a European port at all, then there is a a, a body of law, which which, uh, escapes me right now, Uh, but essentially there's a treaty that will apply, a European treaty uh, that will limit the damages to uh, around a half a million dollars or 400 some odd special fine rights. In any event, that's language you need to look at as well. And if you have a cruise that neither touches an American nor a European port, uh, there may be an even worse damages limitation clause there. I I worked a case a little while ago where there was a a cruise that uh, began and ended in in Central America. And there was a damages limitation clause in there limiting all damages to about 75,000 bucks. And uh, that was a case where somebody lost a limb. So uh, be wary of that. For sure. Uh, and also be wary of notice requirements because every cruise contract I've looked at has a clause in there saying you need to file a notice of claim, which is basically just a letter saying we intend to file a lawsuit within six months. And if you don't file that notice of claim or if you don't mail a letter to them saying I intend to sue within six months, courts will throw those cases out. Uh, they will enforce that clause, so be wary of your statute limitations or your contractual limitation period, and be wary of where the cruise uh, began, ended, and whether it touched a U.S. or a European port, because that will affect your damages.
2: That was great. That's yeah, that's that's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, I, I had another logistical question um, about Zoom. When you guys were in front of the jury or the judge, did you, uh, you see, I've got a background on here. Did you put a background on or did you think about that? Or how did, how did you all think about that? Uh, that's an interesting
1: question. The jurors remarked, um, we were in our conference room with a bookcase behind us. Uh, the defense attorney was in her conference room with a blank white wall behind her. And they said they found the bookcase to be more pleasing to look at. Uh, the judge was in his Home was clear on day one. On day two, he put up a fake backdrop of a tapestry of a bookcase. And one of the jurors remarked that they thought that was more dignified and befitting a federal judge. You know, you don't want to see him in his living room. Right. So uh, they did pick up on uh, camera angles. Uh, the defense attorney used a uh, laptop camera, I think. So it's kind of a weird angle of her head. Right. Uh, we used webcams that were farther back and you could see us a little better. So uh, they notice things like that and you do need to think about it. You know, I was I was thinking, you know, a, a plain background might be less distracting, but it was actually the opposite.
3: It's a great tip.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I have, I've actually it's funny you say it because uh, our, our partner just argued in front of the court of court of appeals by Zoom. And so uh, we it got us talking about, you know, having a couple of backgrounds that look like you're standing in the courtroom you know, and, uh, and just, you know, just putting a court, you know, sort of a courtroom behind you. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think all of that stuff is, uh, interesting and, and, and Yvonne and I just, uh, interviewed someone, uh, last week, right Yvonne, who he just had a really good camera and just uh, like his, his video was just so much better than anybody else's I had seen. So all that stuff matters, I think when you, especially when you're, uh, handling stuff by zoom and, uh, especially when you're going to be doing a trial.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You never know. I, I doubt that, you know, the result would have been different, but you don't want them thinking about those things. You want them thinking about your evidence. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well,
3: well, you guys are very uh, nice to share, to be the sort of the guinea pigs for a whole lot of people, but to share your experience and your, your knowledge from this case, because I, I have learned so much talking to you all about this.
2: Yeah, no, this is uh, this is fantastic. Um, I, so, Ken and David, I just wanted to ask you, is there anything else that we should tell our listeners about uh, either the the Dallow versus Holland America line uh, case or about uh, trying a case on Zoom that you want to make sure that they've uh, that they've heard? I think yeah, I
1: think go ahead,
2: go ahead.
0: Uh, all right I, I would just say don't be afraid to do things on zoom you know the one thing this is this has taught us I think and, and this is really kind of irrespective of the of the result is that uh, it, it's not as daunting as you think uh, and your connection to the jury your ability to, uh, to, to speak with them and and to hear them and to, to understand and, and participate in the proceedings uh, isn't going to suffer the way you think it might. So don't be afraid and, and give it a shot.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, it's a it, it, great result. I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Ken Friedman and David uh, uh, Rosa and um, we've been talking about the case of Margaret Dallow versus Holland, America line Inc. And, uh, that was a, uh, a 1.6 million, 1.69 million dollar verdict that, uh, because of apportionment was reduced to 1.35 million, uh, on behalf of Ms. Dallow. And, uh, if you want to look up Ken and David, you can, uh, look them up on their website at FriedmanRubin.com. That's F R I E D M A N R U B I N.com. Uh David and uh, Ken, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen
0: of the jury, have you reached a verdict?
2: Thank you for listening to The Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast. Podcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
3: Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at GreatTrialsPodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. (laughs) Right, exactly.
2: (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
3: we're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say,